Welcome listeners to our brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today we have a really special treat. We have an author, Dana Rostad, with us. She's the author of You Belong Here Now, which is officially an adult historical fiction. Dana, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Hello, all you writers and readers out there. We're very excited. I'm very excited. This book was on my TBR for a while, and then I finally got it, and then I moved it. Even though I have like 100 books I haven't read yet that's like sitting in my room, I kind of bumped the book up to the top of the pile. Oh, yeah. yeah. We've all got that TBR pile. (laughs) You know how it goes. (laughs) Yeah, and I was just like, okay, this book will skip up to the top. Yeah. And now we're talking, so this is very great. Let's just go just, you know, we always start with the beginning. How did you get into writing? You've got your debut now. It's all very exciting. Short or long version, how does this all come about? Well, you know, my kids were getting older and I was at home at that time. I'd previously been in business and had crazy jobs, which I can tell you about. I used to have a caseload of youthful offenders, which really informed the backgrounds of some of these street kids that I wrote about and you belong here now. But you know, at this point in my life, I'm at home, my kids are teenagers, they're not needing me so much. And my husband turns to me, goes, you know, and I was such a great reader. He said, why don't you try writing? And I said, okay. And so I started and I just dove headfirst into the water. I went to conferences. I joined the creative writing program. I took Publishers Marketplace so that I could just study the industry and see every deal that came through, who bought what to back and forth, and just really focused on the writing industry and the writing craft. And so I was kind of learning two things at once because the industry is one thing to learn. And the craft of writing is quite another, isn't it? But then I started working with a mentor and, you know, I'd always done all these writing seminars and, but it was when I started working with Andrew Willey that he really took me up to that next level in writing. And through his mentorship, I learned how to tell a story, not just write it. Wow. Well, okay. Your husband says, why do you try writing? Why would you even think that was, sure, let's try writing. You always had a dream to write You know, it's funny because before he asked me that, I had written short stories that I never told anybody about. It was a little short story about a bird and it was sort of a fantasy. He turned into something different and he morphed and it was sort of a going to be a story about the environment. And I don't know where that came from, but it just started to come out of me. And so I'm like, okay, what was that about, Diana? (laughs) So I don't know. I guess it's because I'm a real tree freak. I absolutely love trees. I love the environment. I love nature. So I think probably my desire to write and nature sort of came to this big... So and maybe he was reading my mind. I don't know. <laughs> so I always had my head in a book. And so it seemed natural for him to ask the question, well, maybe you want to try writing because, you know, he was always traveling. And so my working outside the house was just not possible at that time. And so I would have had to do something in the house. And so of course, here I am, I'm in my house. <laughs> so, and this is what writers do. They write in their house, despite common belief that we go to Barnes and Noble or cafes. I, I think some people do that, but I think it's just too dang loud. <laughs> so, Yeah. I just, someone's asked me also about like, Oh, where do you write? I'm like at home also. I don't know why I would go somewhere else to write. It doesn't, it also doesn't like make sense to me. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, my space here. So, but just when you started going to the conferences, you said you worked with a mentor and, and all these different people that you worked with. Did you feel like, wow, I never knew writing was like this? It was just kind of, oh, this all, you know, I see how it all fits together beautifully. Or, you know, like what were kind of your impressions like that? You know, I, I knew it was going to be hard. And I thought, you know what, I, I may be not a crazy natural at this, but in working with Andrew, he really kind of pulled the curtain back on a lot of the mechanics of narrating a story. 
that was that aha moment for me because, you know, I learned how to write a sentence. I learned how to plot. I had learned how to edit and I learned how, you know, all these other things, but he sort of really brought it all together. And he said, Diana, there are no rules. He said, there are, there is one rule and that's don't be boring. That kind of freed me up once he told me that and started mentoring me. I'm like, okay, I can break a few rules here. I, I can have a style. Because you know, when you get into a critique group, when you're a very young writer, a lot of times what happens is you all sit around the round table and you all hold each other accountable to rules. Oh no, you can't do that. That's against the rules. Oh no, don't do that. That's against the rules. And so you kind of, it strips out your style a little bit, if you know what I mean. And so it's it's nice to have a mentor who will sort of say, no, forget about it. Write your way. Tell your story. The most important thing is your voice and how you narrate a story. Right. Or you have people who are obsessed with like, I need to find a voice. I need to find my voice. And it's like, well, you'll free yourself. Eventually it'll come out of you. Like it's yes. your style. Like, how you yes. speak, how you would say it, that is your voice. The attitude that you would use to say something, that's your voice in your book because it comes out when you write it. Right. Yeah, that's true. And then once you were going to these conferences, did you already have a story in mind that you were going to be working on or the story only came later? Well, the first story that came to mind was actually just doing some kind of fan fiction with Pride and Prejudice. And I quickly got bored of that. And because I was just absolutely loved Pride and Prejudice. And at that time, the adaptation was just all the thing, you know, Colin Firth. So, but you know, I was always a great reader of older fiction too, from the 19th century. And always there would be this provocative reference to this Lord Byron fellow. And I thought, Well, he's a modern reference. He's a a reference. And and he's always very provocatively thrown out there like, oh, that Lord Byron, don't read that stuff. You know, it was like, what was he doing? So I had to research him. And oh, my God, I thought, this is my guy. I'm going to write Lord Byron. (laughs) So I spent nine years learning everything there is to know about Lord Byron. I've got probably 40 some books. I've been to conferences, Lord Byron conferences, where everybody is just so enthralled with Lord Byron, too, which was amazing. It was so nice to be around people who were as obsessed with him as I was. And then I went up to Edinburgh to read his fan mail, which you can only get from, you know, the archives there in the, the National Library. And just I've been to every place he ever lived. So literally, I've stalked this man. But you know, by the time I got that book to where it was gorgeous, what the literary industry had proclaimed was that biographical fiction was dead. And I'm like, hmm. And you know, and then I've had agents asking me, well, what's the lady from Texas doing writing about Lord Byron? I'm like, here's me. No, really? Come on. So there you have it. And I always had this other idea too. Back in 2007, I came across this online article about the orphan train. And I was like, whoa, there was an orphan train? I had no idea. You know, was I not listening in class? And the teachers out there will be nodding their heads. Yes, you are not listening in class. <laughs> so I became fascinated with this adoption phenomenon. And I had this storyline, you know, all these old pictures of these kids reminded me of the kids on my caseload. They had hope and they were just looking for that next thing to take them out of their circumstances. And they had terrible backgrounds. They lived on the streets. They were in gangs, just like my kids. They're missing parents, one in jail, one 
you know, kind of really addicted. And so it was kind of the same kind of kids. And so I thought, well, I feel like the right person to tell this story. And so I just didn't know where to set it. And so my dad came to Christmas one year and he brought all of these amazing photos of the old family ranches in Montana. And it just, I mean, all these kids running around in like boots and, you know, overalls. And it was, it's so cool. And there was anecdotes written on the back. And so from there, I said, dad, I'm going to set this in Montana. And he was so thrilled. He goes, okay, great. Let's go to the library. <laughs> Ever since then, he has been my best editor and has helped me so much with the book. You can't even believe it. He's read it so many times and just helped me with old cars, old guns. We argued over whether there was butane in 1925 and, you know, just my best editor. So much of my family's legends and lore are in the book. And there's family members in there. Nara was named for my maternal grandmother, Nara, who was a strong woman, but Nara quickly morphed into my eldest daughter, Jessica, who was just so headstrong and so brisk and so about the rules. And, you know, in the book, Charles, my other character only has one rule and that's don't get caught. And so these two characters just butt heads in the book until they sort of come to this place where Charles has to learn that fists don't create justice and Nara has to learn that rules and law doesn't really create justice either. Only love can do that. Love creates justice. And that's kind of where they come to in the book. So Jessica is who the book is dedicated to, correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I don't want to push on that, but I saw that. I think my heart stopped a moment when you see the years on that. I'm like, I was never that good at math, but I think I could understand this math. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. She helped me with the book quite a bit too, when she was still alive. And even as she was sick with cancer, she was a great reader. Jessica was, and she helped me with the ending quite a bit too. So she was just, I miss her every day. I can't even tell you as a mother, it just kills me, but yeah. Wow. Well, so to the actual book, this you worked on with Andrew once you had, you actually had the story at this point that you were able to work on it with him? Yeah, Andrew helped me with the outline on this book. He helped me with several versions of the book, even before it got picked up by Marley Russoff. He helped me. And then afterwards, when she and I were going through it and editing it, he helped me edit it one last time and really got me over that final sort of thing. Just he's always been there with me. I think we've known each other for probably 12 years 11 years. He's a great, great mentor. He's actually lives in UK. He's British. And I actually went to him because, you know, I was writing this Lord Byron story at the time. So, but he loves the West too, because he lived in Colorado with his partner for many years and he loves the West. So he was an editor for Little Brown London. So it took you 10 or 12 years to write this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> You're like, so... It, <laughs> You're doing the math again. I'm like, wait a second. You say you know him for 12 years. Or, wait a second. Wow. How much of that includes research, I guess? Or are you including yeah. all that and all the different drafts? And all? Wow. And just learning how to write too. Just cutting your teeth on your first book. Maybe you don't get it published. It's heartbreaking, but it's still in there. Lord Byron's been gone for 200 years. Someday I will get that book published. <laughs> so, But for now, I'm working on Americanas. And I've got other storylines that I'm working on right now too that are set out West and historical. And Oh, great. I was actually looking to see, because there's nothing there yet of any new titles coming out. I'm like, well, great. <laughs> how do I get more of this? But don't take 10 years. 
pictures, please. I know, right? And then also just to clarify, you said your father showed you all the pictures of the ranch. He grew up on the ranch, but you did not grow up on the ranch. He uh, was born on a ranch, and I think they left Montana when he was six years old. Okay. We've got a lot of family back there in Billings. And when I did my Barnes and Noble talk, I had a lot of um, our family show up from Missoula. It was so cool. So I met people I've never met before. It was so neat. But yeah, so my dad's side of the family are from Montana and my mother's side of the family are from Arkansas. They were cotton farmers there. So as compared to the Lord Byron story, which is like, why are you writing a Lord Byron story? When you came now to agent and you're going to a publisher, I guess everyone's like, well, of course you're writing a Montana story. Or did you have any sort of reaction like that? Or, you know, Marley never reacted to that. <laughs> so, cause she had read the first parts of the Lord Byron book and she had a conflict of interest. And so she couldn't take that book on at that time. And then a year or so later, I phoned her with this book and I pitched it over the phone and I told told her, I have these four executive editors who want to see it. What do you think? And she's like, oh, okay. Send it to me. I sent it to her and she read it over the weekend. And by Sunday, she was offering me representation. And I was absolutely thrilled because she was my dream agent. Well, how did you even get that sort of access to her? Was it through conferences or something that you had met her? And then here's the huge secret. I stalked her (laughs) on Google. We're seeing a pattern here about you stalking people. We should should be asking other questions. This is going to turn quickly. You're like, oops. (laughs) No, but I put a Google alert on her. So if there was any activity on her, she was going to a conference, I would know about it. And so this came up that she was going to this place called The Loft in Minneapolis. And I'm like, oh, that's a weird place for a big gun agent to go to. And I thought, okay, I'm going there though. And so I signed up for the conference and turns out that that was Marley's old bookshop. She grew up in Minneapolis. Her father was a bookbinder and he had a contract with the Montana Historical Society. So she grew up binding books in cowhide. And so she had a tremendous fascination for Montana. And I think her family owns gold mines or something back there. <laughs> or so. <laughs> so a lot of it was luck that she had that real love of Montana and wanted to read the book and loved it when she read it. So, well, so many people talk about their dream agents, but how did you decide that you had read other books that she represented or just researching agents just seemed like this was going to be a good fit for you? Cause you know, there's a lot of options. I mean, there are, there aren't. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of agents out there. Um, so I found her through publishers marketplace. And I think that's an invaluable tool for anyone who is learning to write and gets to the point where they want to sell their book. And I think even before you start writing, you ought to see what's selling at the moment. I know things are trendy and you can't make trends, but it's awful nice to know that nobody wants to see a fantasy vampire before you start writing it. Yeah. (laughs) Because when you go to pitch it, you're going to fall flat. And that's a real hassle. So if you're looking to be a commercial writer who wants to sell their work, honestly, you've got to be on Publishers Marketplace because not only does it have all the deals that pass through the literary industry, it'll tell you which editor buys from this agent pretty regularly, what that editor buys and loves. And so you actually have to figure out Okay, who is this agent selling to the editors? And would that editor, any of those editors like my book based on everything else they've written? So you actually have to work from the editor and then figure out the agents from there on. And so that's how I did it. And also I knew from the statistics on there, because they have a deal makers list there where you can find out, okay, who sells the most uh, fantasy fiction period. And it pulls up all these agents by ranking one, two, three, all the way down to a hundred. And then it'll pull up all the editors who buy this genre of whatever. And so that's super helpful because then you know, okay, who do I pitch this to when you're ready? Yeah. 
And then you said that you had editors who were looking at it. Is that also through conferences that you had access to them? Yeah, I'm part of the Historical Novel Society. And so I would always go to the conferences, both in the UK and here, because I was interested in British agents and British editors too, because my first book, of course, was Lord Byron. And so I pitched to Lucia Macro at the Portland Historical Novel Society. That's where I met her and pitched to her. And she said, yeah, I'd love to see that book. And so I said, okay. And so I was racking up all these, they want to see it, they want to see it. And then I turned around and I parlayed that over to Marley. And I said, here's what I've got so far. Because I was pitching You Belong Here Now out to agents. And I was just falling flat as heck. Nobody wanted to see it. And I think in the industry, there is some kind of stigma with anything set in a Western or a red state. It's just, there's all kinds of political backlash. You can be the most liberal person, but if you go around writing Westerns, it might be assumed that you're a gun toting. I don't know. But I do know that I've been at conferences before where somebody in the audience asked, um, can you sell a Western or how are Westerns selling? out there. And then there was one agent up on the panel who answered very derisively, I can't sell a Western. And that's exactly how she said it. And I was like, oh man, (laughs) you know, so that's what I was up against to get this book published. But it was an orphan train story. And as we know, comps matter in the industry. And the orphan train was a number one New York Times bestseller. So this book had good comps. And more than anything, that's what punched me through and got people to read it and realize that it's set in a Western, but it's a family saga. It's family drama. And it's a good, big hearted story. So yeah, absolutely. It's interesting also that you said you had that child because I'm writing young adult fiction and they say no historical fiction. And it's like, why? Someone decided there's one or two authors that are doing very well with historical fiction in the young adult market. But otherwise, most agents, they don't look at historical fiction. And it's certain historical fiction has the same thing. You could still have sword wielding assassin people. But if it's in a fantasy setting, it sells. If it's historical fiction, doesn't sell. It's just a curious thing. Isn't that interesting? Even when you said things with politics, and I was also very glad that it was just the big hearted story and you weren't trying, that's what it it tells me it's going to be. And then it was that, you know, and then you're like, it's 1925 Montana. Who cares what the politics in 1925 Montana were for today? Like who cares? But I guess like you're saying, I guess everything becomes a mush. Yeah. Yeah. People will avoid certain things because they make assumptions and whatever. And it's tough. It's tough. And I'm sure there's plenty of other people in different genres who have those same issues that they have to sort of really go against. Yeah. So you also write it from two point of views that we have Nara's point of view and Charles' point of view. I guess you always or thought or considered this was going to be like an adult fiction. You didn't consider writing it for a younger audience because you do have younger uh, protagonists in the story. That was that was not a thought or that was a thought? Well, after writing Lord Byron and his market was like this tiny, I said, you know what? I'm going to go wide. I want a wide audience. I'm going to write for the young, old, all genders, that kind of thing. That was really what I was going for. And so I will every once in a while get somebody saying, oh, this feels like a young adult. And you know what? It can in certain parts feel like that because Charles is a young adult. And so I'm writing from that perspective and he's not telling his story as an older man or something like that, where you see a lot of stories done that way. He's really there in that present time telling his story. So yeah, I just chose to do it that way. And I do like a big set of characters. I would have liked to have another point of view if I could have gotten away with it, but you know, it is what it is. It works. I actually thought it was interesting. So one of the characters that you have on the ranch is Jim. He's Cheyenne or... 
Cheyenne. Yeah, okay, he is Cheyenne. And there's kind of that, I guess he's like kind of a stigma. He's a hardworking individual. You see him, he's a very upright individual. But they're still like, oh, he can never be foreman on the ranch because no one's going to listen to him because, you know, he's not, whatever. And then you even have kind of a little bit between him and Nara also. So it's part of the, because you had a lot of fighting the Cheyenne or you had, was it Custer's Last Stand, I think is mentioned. And it actually reminded me a lot. I don't know if you've seen it. You know Sayonara? Is that Marlon Brando? Oh, I've never seen that. Oh, yeah. Oh, I think it came out in the 50s. Part of what that film did is that it broke down the barriers between marriages between Americans and Japanese. Because it was right after World War II. Well, you know, 10 years or whatever after World War II. And we're not talking about um, American Japanese. We're talking about Japanese from Japan. But the film shows you both sides. It shows you that... The Americans had a stigma against the Japanese because you bombed Pearl Harbor and all that stuff. But the Japanese were like, well, you put the bomb on us. So I also would never consider you. And then, you know, the two of them fall out, blah, blah, so it broke down the barriers. So I was thinking about that when I was reading about it. On the one hand, you have the ranchers or whatever. Oh, we never listened to Cheyenne. But it's like, even if they were only protecting themselves, it's not like the Cheyenne didn't also. It came from both sides almost. It was interesting that you kind of like left it almost. Was that just because that would have been more historical accurate or that was just, it just felt right for your characters to just, this is the way it was, so we got to move on from here. You kind of know what I'm trying to ask. Yeah, I mean, I portray what I think would have been the realistic attitudes. Like Papa, for instance, he was 16 years old when the Battle of the Little Bighorn took place right there in that area. And so the settlers would have been terrified of the Indians. But the reality was, is that the Cheyenne, the Lakota, all of those, the Crow, the Crow helped the U.S. find the Cheyenne. So there's some pretty deep resentments there between Cheyenne and Crow, actually, because the Crow scouted for the U.S. as they chased encampments of women and children to just basically obliterate them. But they fought back and they really kicked some butt. They won that war and they should be proud to have done so. I think Jim makes mention of the how his chief would tell the days of the fighting days back then. But, you know, those resentments, I think, are probably very real. I don't think a woman, a white woman could have ever kept up a relationship with a Cheyenne man at that time. She would have been just a total pariah. Her family would have completely, because of course, you know, if they get married, then the ranch would go on to him. And they're like, what, you know? <laughs> so Yeah. No, it's just, it seems that today, either in film or in books, as soon as two people have feelings with each other, they're going to end up in bed together. And it's like, sometimes that's not realistic. You're just kind of fulfilling your own love fantasies instead of sticking to what the facts would have been whether or not you agree with them so it's kind of like oh this feels more real in a way instead of just skill for each other so everybody's got to go crazy you know i hear you i appreciated it if we're writing historical fiction we got to stay with the way it happened whether or not you know i would write that differently then you're going into fantasy alternative historical fiction yeah no matter how much it hurts your characters yeah. Sometimes you have to really hurt your characters. That's what creates the drama on the page. Happy people in happy land don't make good stories. Yeah. Well, that was also interesting for Nara that she's so convinced she wants to take over the ranch. She's given everything into the ranch. Her older brother is not equipped for the ranch, not his life. And then she only realizes once Charles and the rest of them come, she has a moment where they finally kind of merging into this family where she's like, I never want to be a wife and mother, but without being a wife and mother, the ranch would have passed to nobody after me. Yeah, she's kind of being myopic there, huh? Yeah, I, I don't know if there's an answer to that because, you know, you can't 
or maybe you could be giving birth as you're also taking care of the ranch or whatever. But at the same time, you could put your whole life into the ranch. And then what's yeah. it worth if you can't give it to the next generation, I guess? You're going to have to, the government's going to yeah. take it over. Who knows? Who are you going to give it to? Well, you're not giving it to your older brother and his kids. They're probably going up in the city or wherever they're going to be or, you know, whatever. Whoever's going to be his people. Exactly. Yeah. And then one more uh, thing about the book also. You write about the, the Mustangs. You have the wild Mustang. Can you just give some context to that? Because roaming horses. Because wasn't there a thing that when the British first came or the Spanish first came, didn't they bring a lot of kinds of horses with them that were not like indigenous to America? Were there something yeah. like that? So so I don't know. I'm just looking for just something on that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yvette Running Horse Colin did a great paper on this. And I have this book. But she calls that a Eurocentric myth. And she's quite right because they're doing the DNA testing. Horses have been in North America for eons. And there's evidence that Native Americans have been riding them and using them for transportation and hunting forever. Way before the Spanish came here. And I'm sure that there is Spanish blood in the wild horses for sure because they got loose. And so you have these mixes, but the Appaloosa is a native horse. It's indigenous, but a lot of that Eurocentric myth just feeds in the BLM's ability to go ahead and say, well, they're feral. So we're going to take them off that land and put cattle there instead, because big oil interests, big massive cattle operations want that land for forage. But unfortunately, cattle destroy the land when they eat on our national lands. They literally decimate the land. No other animals can come in and they just destroy it. But not not so with the wild horses. They don't eat the grass to the ground like cattle do. Their scat breaks up. The seeds aren't destroyed in their stomachs either. And so when you have wild horses around, the entire ecosystem flourishes. So they're great stewards of our national lands. Well, so was this just, I guess they didn't necessarily know that or they just considered it a nuisance? Because you have whatever the neighbor guy's name is. Oh yeah, Ivor. Yeah, he doesn't want the wild horses around. Yeah, same problem. It's all a fight over forage for grass, for feed for your stock. And it nothing's changed in a hundred years. They're still rounding up those horses and they still end up in the slaughter system despite all the laws we passed. So did you go up? Well, you have been up to Montana, but did you go before the book came out? Like are, are all most of these ranches are still around today or what's like, what does that look there like these days? Ranches. There are some ranches out there for sure. In fact, when I was going out to do my research, it was Calamity Jane's old ranch. She lived up near Billings, was up for sale. I thought that was the coolest thing ever, you know, and she was around. She was a nurse of sorts in the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Yeah, she was an interesting character. Yeah, I once, I think after I saw, you know, the Doris Day version, so I actually did some research and it's like, everyone thought she was a big mouth. No one really knew what to believe from the thing she said. I don't know if that's real or not, but I kind of saw some of that about her. I was like, oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but I guess I just asked one more thing. This whole thing with the orphan train, was that a very brief amount of time that that occurred for, that they would have these orphans in the big cities and kind of send them west? No, actually, it was a very long running adoption program. It, it ran between 1853 and 1929. The biggest catalyst to it was actually the building of the railroad itself, because all these railroad barons, they needed people to go west because they needed commerce and cities and if they were going to make money on the railroads. And so they flyered all of Europe and beyond saying, free land, land of free. And so all these people, 4 million people came to the Eastern seaboard, but they didn't know that they needed money for wagon and provisions and how dangerous it was. So they just got stuck there and it created this tremendous crisis. And eventually people were abandoning their children to the streets. And so it created the homelessness and the problem that we see that the orphan train was there to fix, to take those kids out to the ranches and farms and give them good lives and good work and take them to church. From what the record show or 
as far as history tells us, can they say that that was a very good program, the orphan train? Because it, it sounds like, oh, that's so smart. Let the kids go somewhere where they can run. And But you could say that, and then I guess there's probably a few bad apples, but overall, was that considered a very good thing? I think it was a great program. I think whenever you have humans involved in anything, you're going to have some percentage of evil and problems. There's no doubt. But I think overall, the train descendants that I've talked to, they had good stories. They went on to have many children and fruitful lives. And they had a chance that they wouldn't have had, you know, running around starved with no shoes, sleeping in alleyways and running around in gangs in a filthy, filthy city riddled with disease. And there's no doubt that there were some really bad stories out there from the orphan train in terms of people really taking advantage of these kids. But I think that the Children's Aid Society did everything they could. They had liaisons, they had two different contracts, kids 15 and above, they figured, well, they're taking them on more for work. So they had protections in that contract, 14 and below. That was a different contract. They were to be treated in every way as a member of the family. So I think it was pretty progressive that they kind of took two different tracks there and really kind of executed on that. So that was pretty, I think that was a really good idea that they had. And I've only heard good stories, but I know there's bad out there too. So, well, have you had, since your book came out, did you have a lot of people come over to you? Like, I never knew that was history. I never knew this stuff occurred. Have you gotten that a lot? Yes. And I get a lot of people on my Facebook ads say, my father was a, you know, my great grandfather. And I said, get in touch with me. Cause I love to interview you guys and hear the stories. And I do have an interview on my YouTube channel and I'm trying to get more. And a lot of times I have family reach out to me, extended family, Rostads or, you know, are we related? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, we are. And you know what? You're related to that other person who emailed me too. <laughs> we it's so cool. So much good for one book that took you 10 years, 12 years to write. That's right. <laughs> oh, well, it's a good film. Well, so that's why also that there's so much of that historical fiction tells us. So that's why when they're like, oh, historical fiction doesn't sell. It's like, well, figure it out. <laughs> figure out how to sell it. We need to know stuff. Like you said, we're not, either we're not listening in school. We've been out of school for a long time. And it's a lot funner to learn it you know, through a story, a, a really compelling story. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, one more question. I keep saying there's all on question, but now one more question. <laughs> so we did mention trying to stick to historical facts and things like that. But was there a point that you came across something that you're like, maybe I need to tweak it a little bit? Or you're like, no, you must stick with the facts. Did you have that kind of conflict at all when you were writing it? You know, there was two things that stand out to me. And the first one is in the oral histories at the Montana Historical Society, there was a 12-year-old boy who told someone his story and it was written down. So it was an oral history that somebody documented. And he'd said that he experienced a great deal of camaraderie amongst the different, you know, Germans, Russians, Norwegians, everybody who came to Montana to homestead. At that time, though, it's very true. And this, it was actually happening in the city, the prejudice against the Irish. So some of that was, I flipped it. And the other thing that I had to make magic from is that the prior mountain range band of wild horses wasn't as close to Bull Mountain as I would have liked it to be. So we don't know that there was wild horses in that part of the Yellowstone, but you know, those are kind of the things that you have to take liberties with it sometimes. But all the other animals that I portrayed in there were definitely there at that time. So, well, it's just funny you hear about the prejudice to the Irish. I'm like, what? Well, remember when JFK was elected? They're like, oh, an Irish Catholic? That's crazy. And because it wasn't too long before that that the Irish were called terrible names. They were the big wave of immigration back then. People thought they were lazy and on the dole. And so that's kind of what Patrick is fighting against is that 
stigma that he, you know he and his ancestors are just here for a free ride yeah well just to wrap up i always have that fill in the blank of i love it when and choosing one and it could be a soapbox answer it could be uh, off the cuff it's fine so i love it when you could do either fellow writers or books stories covers agents editors bookstores libraries you know anything that's kind of in the book world i love it when they do x and i don't like it when they do x how do you fill in the blank for that well i love it when book clubs contact me and ask me to join their discussion because i love book clubs i've had to move around a lot in my life and the way i've always found my tribe is by creating a book club or joining one so i love book clubs And I'd have to say that the thing I just really can't stand in the industry is that they will oftentimes proclaim something dead. And the reason they have to do that is because they flood the market with it first. And then, you know, some writer out there is writing a gorgeous or like right now his World War II, it's going to happen sooner or later. They're going to go, oh, World War II is dead. Yes. And some writer out there is going to have a gorgeous, gorgeous story that they can't sell. And it just, that makes me mad. That is a perfect, yeah. And it's the World War II stories and it's the World War II covers. I think 50% of them are the back of a woman. She's standing somewhere. She's standing in the street. It's like, yeah, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm glad you got 1925 Montana out there and I hope they don't declare it dead anytime soon or whatever books you've got going. Well, Yellowstone <laughs> is helping me. That shows number one out there right now. So I, I always tell people that my book is actually kind of the Disney version of Yellowstone. Believe it or not, there's so many similar characters in there like Beth and Nara, John Dutton and Papa and Rip and Charles. It's crazy how many similarities there are to my storyline. And so just for Taylor Sheridan and John Linson out there, I wrote this thing a long freaking time ago. I did not copy you. <laughs> so... <laughs> just gonna say that I was like and I know you just told me you started this 10 years ago I know I did I had the whole storyline all the characters so (laughs) I'm just glad that Yellowstone's out there because they really helped me when a story goes big like that it just helps everybody else who's writing stuff like that to get their stuff out so I'm grateful for these guys these creators and the stars in that show and Kevin Costner who always I think he always supports westerns I think he does a good job of that of finding good stories like that's yeah awesome it's like you keep calling it a western but I, I think to my mind westerns are like gunslinging cowboys you know they're not gunslinging cowboys this is a family story but like they're not not but it's just funny yeah, it takes place in montana on a cattle ranch in 1925 so yeah <laughs> they don't all get together and go shoot them up at the okay corral they don't <laughs> a lot of westerns have sort of a vengeance theme going yeah. on but believe it or not our modern action adventure movies are based upon the western template the western movie that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah. Well, I think I've read a few westerns, but the the one that I know, but that's a shame, probably. Like that's the one western. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> so I think that book's got a different kind of. Uh, it's it's got its level. Well, very good. Well, Diana, thank you so much. I'm so glad I got to speak with you. This is amazing. Well, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun talking to you. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring author Diana Rostin. Find out more about Diana and her work. Please visit the link in the episode notes. Find out more about Oh My Word podcast and all the great stuff we're up to. Please follow us on Instagram at Oh My Word podcast. Check us out at el10about.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.